This podcast is brought to you by Craft Beer and Brewing Magazine for those that love to make and drink great beer. Learn more online or subscribe at beerandbrewing.com or find us on social media at Craft Beer Brew. Welcome to the Craft Beer and Brewing Podcast. I'm your host, co-founder and editorial director of Craft Beer and Brewing Magazine, Jamie Bogner. This is episode 230, and we are back in Belgium this week for the podcast, episode number 230, with Nino Bocelli of Doranka and uh, Dotany. Dotany is a good uh, way to, to speak out, yes, yes. Yeah. Well, welcome to the podcast, Nino. Thank you. Thank you. And uh, also co-hosting with me, Joe Stank. Welcome, Joe. Thank you. Very happy to be here. Joe has been leading the charge in our uh, our trip through Belgium, and uh, it was the crucial producer pulling all of this together and connecting everything so that we can bring these conversations to you. We are going. This is a surprise episode because you know, as we've been here in Belgium talking about Belgian beers, uh, we really haven't. We've been talking about very traditional styles. We've been talking about sour beers and lambic, um, but we're going to talk about hops. Uh, in a very significant way in this episode, because that uh, is something near and dear to uh, Daranka and their approach to brewing uh, with Exec Bitter and other beers. They are a very specific, very principled, very direct way of using hops. Uh, and we're going to talk about how they do that uh, and because it's a, a beautiful approach to using hops in their beer. Before we do that, what if you could chill your beer with a more efficient chiller? The answer, GD Chiller's new micro channel condensers. GD's micro channel condensers are highly efficient in hotter regions, use a fraction of the refrigerant over traditional chillers, which provides less opportunity for leaks along with lower global warming potential. GD Chiller's engineers are committed to green technology design while developing a more efficient chiller for the brewing industry. Contact GD Chillers today at gdchillers.com. Also, this episode is brought to you by BSG and RAR Malting Company, the home of fossil-free malt. RAR's headquarters in Shakopee, Minnesota is powered by renewable electricity. Malt houses and kilns are fed by an electrostatic boiler fueled by agricultural byproducts, much of which is waste from the malting process. By eliminating the use of natural gas, RAR Malting Company reduces CO2 emissions by 260,000 tons per year while filling 20 of the U.S. brewing industry's malt needs. Put the power of raw malt in your beer at go.bsgcraft.com slash contact dash us. Nino, as we normally start the podcast, uh, you know, we normally start with a little bit of background and history. Why don't you tell us about your background and history um, leading up to and then the the founding and creation of Dranka? Yeah. Um, In fact, my grandfather was a beer staker. You know, a Hoese steaker, a blender of Goese. In the old times, uh, breweries had no bottling lines. So in 1930, my grandfather started buying beer and wooden kegs and then putting it in bottles and selling it to the public. So that's very common then in that era. And short after, he started also to make soft drinks, lemonade and, and uh, gas water. So, um, uh, and, and it went from there. So I was born as a, in the third generation, and my father was still beer distributor and a lemonade factory, small lemonade factory. So I, when I was young, I didn't see too much future in this business, but I was very interested in in beer and, and especially in if you what you could see then when I was young. I was, I'm born in '58. I was young in '78, and then it just popped up the the, the craft beer 
was not st- uh, yet in Belgium already. Maybe it started in in America then. And um, but what we could see is we still had 120 breweries in Belgium, and we could see 30, 40 that were be- becoming bigger industrial and automatic. And then we could see 80 breweries where the owner was also 80 years old, where the kids would do it. And uh, often we could drink the best beer there. So we, <laughs> right. wondered, we wondered why, but at that moment we were just, yeah, we were more or less in the business, but most beer lovers, we, didn't, we, are, we were not brewers. So at that moment uh, we visited a lot of breweries and at, at one moment we could see that all these old brewers were disappearing. They were just stopping. The kids said, we're going to sell the building and it was done. And then uh, we could see everything disappear. And on the meantime, we could see the bigger breweries that still had good beer, good bitter beer, just changing the recipes. They were making beer sweeter, less bitterness, and it will become more industrial. So at a certain moment, I, I felt that I should do something, but I didn't have the skills at that moment. So <laughs> it took me 10 more years to learn to brew, to homebrew. We started homebrewing in 1981. And the first thing I did was buying, uh, not wa- uh, not malt, but uh, barley at the farmer mm. and malted myself. <laughs> <laughs> and then it was not very good beer. So it t- took me some years to make good beer. And at a certain moment, I had the opportunity in 1994 to to hire a brewery. And I think I was the first one in Belgium who did that. We could we hired the, uh, the, the equipment of the Deca Brewery and we went there to brew the the beer. So that's where, we, where, it's, where it all started, in fact. And um, from the beginning, I was a beer lover, a bitter beer lover. Little by little, I saw where the, the, the things are in this bitterness um, because it's much easier to work with pellets and extract. Most of the breweries did that. Even the young brewers were tending more to pellets and extract because all the installations, the, the, the equipment you can find is made for that. It's a copy of an industrial brewery. At the Deca Brewery, we were, we were near Popringen, near Westfleten also, and we could see that the hop farmers that still were in that region around Popringen mostly sell their, their hops to abroad. They were selling the hops to pellet factories in Germany or in uh, England, and there it was transformed and then from there it was sold. So uh, I think at that moment it was strange for us to see breweries that were in that area not using hops from the farm, straight from the farm, right? because it was so near. And you could go there with the, with the hop harvest and see all this beauty. And it was just like lost in the pellet factory for us. So the main thing, the, the, the main problem with whole hops was most of the farmers just breed it. And then harvest it, they dry it, then it sits in the farm for another two months, and then in end of November they start to deliver it to the breweries or to the pellet, pellet factory. But because this period was only one or two months on the farm, they didn't see the the thing to put a fridge, for example. So they were the hops were losing quality on the farm. Right. And then after it was pelletized, or it was sold to the to the the brewer, and then you get your hops in November, and it was quite good. But then, end of the season, you could see quality dropping very fast because you lost quality in the beginning of the season. Sure. You affected negatively affected yeah. the hop stability. Yeah. And that's what we discovered during 
or first years that if you got the hops straight from the harvest by 1st of October, you put it in the fridge, you could go until the end of the season without almost no losses of quality. Um, so that's why at a certain moment we were brewing XX Bitter, for example. And in the beginning, we, we get delivered hops in November. By, let's say, March, when it becomes warmer again, the quality was going down, and then we added some pellets. And immediately we could see that the beer is not the same anymore. If at the bottling, when we taste it, yeah, it's, it's good, but it's not the same. <laughs> it's, so at a certain moment, we said we have to go back, speak to the farmers, and make an arrangement that they deliver the hops by 1st of October, so that we can put a fridge and put it in and go to the end of the season. And that's how we discovered that you could make very nice beer, whole season around, with whole hops. The, the, the challenge is to conservation of these uh, hops, of course. Sure, sure. It's, it's not as stable, of course, as, as pellets. Yeah. With pellets, you top off your quality and you stay stable. Whole hops, you buy them and you have to keep them good as, as long as possible. Keep, keep them in good shape as long as possible. Sure. Let's talk about why you insist on using whole cone hops. But before we do that, are you looking for innovation in your next beverage breakthrough? Think outside the puree box and let your brand stand out. With Old Orchard's craft concentrate blends, even smoothie seltzers can benefit from the extra boost of flavor and color. Old Orchard is based in the greater Grand Rapids, Michigan area, also known as Beer City USA, and supplies craft beverage categories ranging from beer, wine, and cider to seltzer, spirits, and kombucha. To join the core of Old Orchard's brewing community, learn more at oldorchard.com slash brewer. Also, Brew Monitor from Precision Fermentation is the first real-time comprehensive fermentation monitoring solution. It works with your existing fermentation tanks to track dissolved oxygen, pH, gravity, pressure, temperature, and conductivity in real time from any smartphone, tablet, or PC. Brew Monitor provides detailed insight into your fermentations that helps improve beer consistency, reduce tank time, and increase overall efficiency, saving your brewery time and money. Get started for 30 days risk-free. Visit precisionfermentation.com slash brewing. So you found a way to insist that the hop, local hops farms could get you bales of, of hops fresh after the harvest. But why not use those pelletized hops? Why insist on using whole cone hops? Just because, like I just said, when we used even 20% of pellets, we could see the, the, the taste of, especially XX bitter change. I don't mm. say if you have a beer with 25 IBU, it's not so important. But if you, we start, our beer start at 40 IBU, is minimum. And it's, uh, it ends at 75 IBU. So we are all in between this um, IBUs means all the beers are bitter, and and if this with this high bitterness, you can see that the quality is different. the the um, The hop taste is more refined, is more balanced, it's not not so aggressive. And what happens, in fact, if you grind the whole, whole, whole cone hops to make pellets, you expose the essential oils to the air, and it oxidizes, more or less. So that changes the taste. Another thing is when you make pellets, it's high pressure. High pressure means temperature goes up. Right. Even if you chill the 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 farms, it still goes up to fifty five degrees. So this fifty five degrees will influence also the taste of the the hop oil, and change it. So 
a pelletized hop is not the same, even if if it's the same variety, the same hops, even from the same field, it's not the same anymore. So, like I said before, low IBUs is not a problem, I think. You don't taste it so much. But if you go high, then you can find the difference between pellets. It's, with pellets, you will have a harder, harsher hoppiness, bitterness. With pellets, with uh, flowers, sorry, with, with whole cone hops, you can go further and it, it will be more balanced, more softer and still bitter, but in another way. There is an argument that some make about pelletized hops that that pelletizing process makes it easier to extract, you know, oils compared to a, you know, a, a whole flower, whole cone hop, um, you know, which can either be good or bad, right? It could be a good thing if you are trying to find intensity. It might be a bad thing if you're trying to find more subtlety. Um, you know, but then, of course, the challenge is that at in order to achieve the level of bitterness, especially because you are using pretty low alpha hops, yeah. to achieve that kind of bitterness level, it takes a lot of hops. It takes a lot of hops. If you see what we use in hops is... It lies in between 7 and 15 grams per liter. So it's very high. Um, and also it gives you a lot of losses. In fact, using whole hops, you have one advantage for me. is the taste and the, the nose. For the rest, is only disadvantages. <laughs> sure, <laughs> so sure, you can sure. buy only once a year. So with the harvest, you can buy whole hops. If the, the harvest is gone, because we want to, to buy local, because we want to go there just at the end, before the harvest, see the hops and choose the, the lots we want to buy. And then it's harvested. And you in, in August, we have to decide what we're going to make next year. Right. So that's difficult. You always buy too much or not enough. <laughs> so And it's not like the farmer is going to sit on these extra unpelletized bales of hops. They will pelletize no, them because that course. will store for them. Yeah. Then it's conservable. So you either buy everything right yeah. at the front or yeah. you don't get them. Means you buy too much or not enough. At the end of the season, if you have enough, it's good. And but you will you will have a leftover that costs you money. And on the other hand, if you use you sell more beer from one kind, we have nine, uh, ten varieties of hops now, uh, sixteen varieties of beer. So it's a difficult puzzle to to make and and every year to see what we're gonna buy, and you always have leftovers. So it's a more expensive way. The other hand is you have also more losses in your production. Um, most of the time you lose like between 5 and 7% of wort wow. in the production because of the whole hops. It sucks the, the wort, the wort sure. and you can't get it out anymore. So, And the second thing is cleaning. You have to clean clean it out while the, the hop flowers you put in, one kilogram of hop flowers you put in your boil gives you seven extra kilograms of wort that's in, <laughs> that, still, <laughs> that stays in the, in the, right. in the hops. So you... You put in like 30 kilograms and you get back 300 kilograms. That's more or less what it is. So it's a, a lot of cleaning. It makes so in the system we have, because when we built this system... It's designed for this. It right? was designed to make one brew a week. So at that moment, it was not a problem. If the hops stay in your kettle, you have the whole week to clean it. But if you... Right, because the kettle is hot, you can't just go yeah. in and get them right away. It's hot to- and it's very still very wet, not, uh, yeah. too, too much liquid. So it's impossible to clean the, the same night. So you can't do two brews on a row. You have to brew, 
and you have you have to leak out all the the wort from the the hops who are still in the kettle, and to chill it down also. And the day after you can go in. So it means every day when we brew, there's a brewer, but it's also a, an assistant brewer that helps to get the hops out. So it's a, a hard work and and a lot of work, and it's a lot of hours. It's a lot of losses, and uh, yeah, and and you, you can't use everything. You can't use hundred percent of of the hop you 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 bought. So sure, sure. You've also built a kettle that's or designed to improve the the kind of extraction of hops through that boil. Yeah, yeah sure. We I studied the the old brewing kettles from let's say from nine before nineteen hundred, nineteenth century. And you could see all the hops, uh, all the, the kettles were uh, copper and wood-fired. So it means the, the fire was in the middle of the kettle. And um, the, the, the bottom of the kettle was um, just shaped like that the flame, was in the, the flame was in the middle. And then on the sides, you have a turning of the, the hot uh, liquid. And, the, and, and it makes turn around the, the hop flowers. And you get the exchange. It creates from, a kind of convective current. Yeah. 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 And we did the same thing, only with a different boiler, not with a wood fire or a, a, a coal fire. So with a, a, a blown blower. So we we did the same thing on one side. So from it, the bottom from the kettle is shaped like in a slope, and it burns on on this sloped bottom, and that makes gives you the same effect. If you put hops in, if you put like in a kettle of forty hectoliter, you put thirty five kilogram of hops, just takes the hop. Little by little, the boil takes the hops. You you need this, like English roaring boil, right? To get all the hops into to suck all the hops into the the wort and have the exchange. Yeah, so you need that, and you can have, have a yeah. violent violent boil makes you turn around, makes you uh, like a, it's like a stirring device without stirring device. Eh? Sure, so it's it's a natural um, method of stirring. And the advantage if if you have a stirring device that would be easy also, but it's, then it's in the way to, for cleaning. Right, right. So in our case, we uh, just uh, a guy goes in to clean it out, and it has that pickup tube that's above the kind of base, so that those hops can settle down, and you can uh, pull off wort from on top of it. Yeah, in fact, we use the same as you do for your t- taking your wort from the grain. You let the, the grain settle down on a filter. We do the same on the the two exits of the boiling kettle. We have a strainer. That keeps the hops inside. So, and after boiling, we cut the fire for forty-five minutes. And at that moment, all the hops go down, make a layer of half a meter, and then you can extract the wort by gravity. And all the impurities, all the, the albumins and the the rests of the grain, stays on the hop. The hop functions as a natural filter. Mm. So, what comes out is clear wort. So, you don't need a whirlpool, centrifuge, or something else to get the hop particles out. The hops are here cleaning out the wort. So you had you get clear wort from straight from the boiler. Now it's not copper, right? Um, that would be an incredibly expensive brew house today, mm-hmm. or or is it? No, it's not copper. It's it's uh, stainless steel. Yeah. And so that conducts in a little different way than copper tends to conduct heat too. Yeah, it's a little different, but it's not a not a not a, not a problem. It's it just yeah. You need ex- to build up the experience with that. So yeah, we just build it and then. Like I said, we, we just build up the experience. And if we're going to talk about equipment, I'd love to ask about the fermenters too. The they're not cylindro conical fermenters. They're they're flat bottom, 
and they get only about two thirds full. You do forty yeah. hectoliter batch, but they're six. They can hold sixty. So the 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 fermenting beer, the yeast has room to breathe, and the the yeast that you use is expressive. It's a little spicy, but it's in balance with the hops. So maybe uh-huh. you could talk about how all those pieces fit together for yeah. the for the profile. So when we started brewing at the Deca Brewery, it was still a very old fashioned way of ferment, fermentation. The the we still were open fermenters. So that gives us the idea this is a very nice way to, to do it. But um, the, the disadvantage of the open fermenters is you've got a lot of cleaning and it's very difficult to control and to keep keep it sanitized. So um, when we started here, we, we, we choose for an option where we have a, a fermenter of 60 liter, who is a closed fermenter, has a spray, spraying bowl inside, so you can clean with the SIP system. And But for the rest, we work like in an open system. So it's a 60 hectoliter fermenter um, with a water lock on, with no pressure, and then you put 40 in, and it um, we have almost no temperature control. So we start at 20, 21 degrees, adding the yeast just before the, the wort goes in, and then we let the, the fermentation go. It go temperature goes up until 28, 28 29 uh, degrees Celsius. And only if in the summer, if it's too too much accumulating heat and the, the air is not cold enough anymore to to chill the the fermenter, uh, we we just put in some some cold water to keep it below thirty. But for the rest, we do no temperature control. It goes up from twenty to thirty. So we let it we let it place between twenty and thirty and gives it develops more fruitiness. And um, what happens after you have a fast uh, first fermentation after seven days, mostly. Most of the times it's finished, and then uh, the, the 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 yeast is already sedimenting. And after ten days, most of the time is depending on how 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 uh, how much degrees, how more plateau you have in the beer. Uh, but between eight and ten days, we are uh, transferring the beer from above, from the the normal floor to the cellar, where it goes in in um, in lagering, and it stays in lagering at Keep it in your eyes, 15 degrees Celsius. So it stays at 15 degrees Celsius, means fermentation goes on. High fermentation, if you chill in that phase, the fermentation will stop and you still will have residual sugar. What we do is just keep it at 15 degrees and keep it a little bit longer in the the cellar. So we we still have two weeks of fermentation, but slow fermentation. But you eat all the sugar sugar who is uh, fermentable and then you stay with beer with zero fermentable sugar and only the unfermentable sugar. And it gives you very good control when you do refermentation at the bottle. And in the keg. We do also refermentation in the keg. So for that, it's super important. Um, after four weeks, we can extract the beer when all the yeast is sedimented. We bottle it with an uh, adjunct of, of some sugar for the, do the refermentation. Less sugar for the, the, the kegs than for the, for the bottle, of course. But everything is refermented. We have no, the bottling system and the kegging system is made for flat beer. No pressure. <laughs> I, yeah, it's a two-level fermentation system, where, like you said, where the primary fermentation happens on the upper level. There are small glycol jackets or small jackets on those that you can use to cool them just only if it gets too hot, but usually yeah, only not. some degrees, yeah. Yeah, and then after that primary fermentation, you drop it down into the the basement which everything is in a temperature controlled cooler down there but it's also in the basement so it just stays stays cool and that's where you know you mentioned it conditions for longer but at a temperature where it can continue to ferment yeah 
So the, the secondary, I always have to look it up. That's about 59 degrees Fahrenheit for the secondary fermentation. And you're looking at 68, probably up to around 80 for yeah. the primary. Yeah, so. yeah it could so be that. Yeah. yeah. It's like, it's, it's cool, definitely not cold. Right. Yeah. But then your yeast is not going to drop out. It's going to stay there and continue to work, just work slowly. It will drop out, but it needs more time. Mm. So it's, it just takes time to, you, you just need four weeks in the cellar. <laughs> so it means yeah. in total you have uh, between brewing and uh, bottling, you have like five to five and a half weeks. After bottling, you need one and a half, two weeks for the refermentation. The advantage is when you bottle it and the beer comes from 15 degrees and you start some, you add some sugar and some new yeast, the fermentation goes very fast. Your fermentation is done in seven days, and and then ninety eight percent of the sugar is uh, into into alcohol and CO two. You you be saturated, and it just need one more week to settle down the this, the the yeast again. Of course, in every beer we have, you find some um, sediment. Sure, and also means. Uh, for the the pubs and the bars is more difficult. They have to understand that this some there can be some yeast in your beer at a certain moment. So it's a question, and it's complicated to explain to to um, publicans that you have to let sit a keg of beer twenty four hours before you can tap it. So, but it's 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 the only way to make the difference. I think in our case, yeah. For, from a production standpoint, you know, a lot of breweries use cylindroconical fermenters because, you know, they ferment quickly. It's easy to uh, capture yeast and then, you know, use that and clean it and repitch it, you know, using these very shallow bottomed wine style fermenters, mm-hmm. um, you know, poses an additional production challenge, certainly around, you know, around uh, capturing yeast, but then also cleaning um, from a sensory perspective, you have to want to do it that way for a very particular reason, um, you know. And that, and you, from what you said before, it's because you are trying to go for that open fermentation style within a closed tank. Yeah, 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 yeah. And it's it's very it's it's of course you have to be aware that it's it's a, it's a lot of work. If you do it this way, you have to clean every tank two times. It's a lot of work. If yeah. you if I have a cylinder conical, you clean one time, you take the yeast, and it, it's very easy, of course. And you can control your temperature. Here we don't control the temperature individually. It's just every tank is, if in first fermentation your tanks go up to between 20 and 30, and in the secondary fermentation you stay at 15 degrees. So it's only the ambient ambient who is chilled or controlled. And for the rest, nothing. So it's an, it's an old style of making beer. And it gives you more work, but it gives you, gives you very nice control on the fermentation, I, I, I think. And and it's a big advantage if you referment beer, of course. If you don't referment yeah. beer, it has no sense. But in our case, for me, it's always important to recreate also the beer from before. Yeah. Before when when I was I'm already quite old, so when I was very young, I could find these beers, taste the beers. I, I was very lucky in Belgium. We start very early with drinking <laughs> beer. So uh, when we were kids at school, at seven, eight years, we were already drinking ta- table beer. And uh, most of the time, by fourteen, fifteen year, you get out and go in, in a bar and drink a beer. It's not allowed anymore, <laughs> I think, <laughs> but it's how it is, and it it gives you at a very young age it, this taste of bitterness and beer, and and it it influences you very much. So I was always dreaming of recreating this beer from the old time. And that's why I very 
attached to old ways of doing it because I think it it adds a difference. Uh, it it adds a different taste than the modern way to doing it. I think uh, maybe that's a good place to start talking about uh, the first beer that you bre- that you uh, well you and Kiro brewed together. Uh, also was was uh, Deranka's first beer. Mm-hmm. The Huldenberg is a very special yeah. triple. Yeah. I think people when people think of Belgian triple, they think of beers that are a bit sweet, definitely mm-hmm. strong, of course, but yeah. also with a spicy profile. And and Huldenberg is different. It's bitter. It's dry hopped. And can you talk about maybe what the what the inspirations were for that beer? Yeah. Well, in fact, um, Gildenberg is the, the beer that I developed before I, I knew Guido, in fact. Okay. So um, at that moment, my favorite beers were like Mouinet Blonde, Mouinet uh, Abbey de Mouinet, what, what, what it was in that time, um, a smaller triple and, and Orval. So I tried to make something, uh, a symbiosis of these three beers and the Gildenberg. But what is quite important, and it's dry hopped also. So what is quite important in that is I think the style, the style of, of triple we make, it was the general style in the 60s or the 70s. The beer was made a little bit more bitter because it, it was normal then. In the 60s and 70s, you could find most of the beers were, even the, most of the pilsers were 35 IBU. And then in the 70s, 80s, everybody started to lower down the bitterness because it was not needed anymore. So also in the pilsen, but also in the high fermentation beers, you could find an example of a, of a Trappist beer that was 45 and that is now 29, for example. So it's it was at a certain moment so common to lower the bitterness that it left a gap in the market, in fact. In fact, and when I was getting out the triple, I wanted it to be quite bitter, going back to the the the, the taste I remembered. So that's why it's different. But in fact, if you put it in a in a concours, in a um, competition, in a competition now, nine nine times out of ten, it goes out because it's not conformed to the style. It's, <laughs> it's too bitter. Right. While when you would, if you would do the the same competition in 1960, it, I'm sure it would fit the the style. But that's little by little, the industry make people accept that triples are sweet and not hoppy. And it's just because of the industry that's like that. So. I got back to the, what is for me the origin with the Guldenberg. And it's an Abbey beer, not because, be, because I want to pretend to be a father or, or to have an Abbey. But if you, if I studied the, the, the breweries in, like in 1990, you could see all the breweries in Belgium had an Abbey beer because it was the, almost the only style besides of a Pilsner, a brown like Rodenbach and then a, a, a Goese and then they had an English Pelel in, in the portfolio and then an Abbey beer. It was as normal as could be that you have an Abbey beer in your style. So that's, I choose the, the name Abbey style, Abbey style also because in my hometown, Wivelgem, there was an Abbey, a Cisterciense Abbey and it was the first place where they made beer until nine, uh, uh, 1794, when Napoleon closed it. But it's the, the, the abbeys were the origin of high fermentation, good, good quality beer in Belgium. Well, then then the, the next beer that you brewed would have been the XX Bitter, is that right? Um, the next beer, in fact, is the Pernoel. But that's, that's the first recipe that we tried with Guido. 
Guido was, at the moment that they started the brewery in 1994, Guido was a founder of Beer Tasting Club. And so that's how we connected. And we found that we have the same ideas. At that moment, it's quite difficult to commercialize beer in Belgium. So uh, it was a weekend job. It was We both had other jobs and it was a weekend job. And it, it was nice to have a, a buddy that, that has the same ideas, uh, thinks the same, feels the same about the taste and, and could tell Bosco also. And um, that's first time I made the, the Pernabel as a, an experimental beer at Giz- with Guido's installation. And then... Uh, we put that on the market, and just after we put uh, XX Bitter in the market, who is in fact a recipe developed by Guido because he wanted to try how bitter can you go without being too much. <laughs> <That's>, <laughs> uh, I think that it's such an interesting beer, um, sort of historically, mm-hmm. the recent history, I suppose. It depends how far back you want to go, but because um, to me it seems now like a beer that was very far ahead of its time. Mm-hmm. Um, and yet you talking about how you and Hito were trying to make beers that really were like you remembered. It took, I, maybe it was kickstarted by XX Bitter, but it took Belgium another 10 years to really start getting into bitter beers and hops again. Oh Yes, for sure. Uh, when we started XX Bitter, I remember that we have uh, we didn't dare to put it on the market straight away. So we, we, we made a, a small batch of, I think, 300 liters. And we, we get on, on some festivals with it. Just with uh, just n- almost no name, bitter beer, experimental brew, something like that. And uh, the reaction was, in fact, a, a little bit strange. We, we got a lot of people said, ah, it's too bitter. But on the other hand, we had some people said, ah, it was like a, a, lard, uh, a light burning in their head. So they were drinking and said, wow, what is this? I want to know what it is. And, and they were very interested. And we got a lot of brews also coming after hearing from... from uh, from another one, I want to taste your bitter beer, and so they. they ah, I like this. I'm a brewer, but you can't sell this. Okay, <laughs> that's not our problem. We we are just. Have, that's a hobby for us. So at that moment, we said it's interesting, and and I was in fact when Guido get this beer out because he made it alone, and when he gets it out first time and he presented it to me, I the, the first thing I said was. You have to put this on the market. It's 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 so nice. It's so balanced. It's so it's a perfect balance. And and um, he said, no, no, we can't do that. It's too bitter. He, he, I think, what do we risk? Let's make a batch and put some labels on it, and we will see if it's if it if you can sell it or not. And, and that's where we went from. And and that luckily that make it gives us some notoriety everywhere in in the beer world. I think. And it took another 10 years, maybe even 15 years, before Belgians <laughs> started to drink beer. And still nowadays, it's still very... They are very spoiled by sweetness. The Belgian public is so used to sweetness that they know the industrial beers they know. You need, you have a lot of bigger producers that sell sweet beers because it's a trend, a mold. It's The public is used to, to sweetness. And it's easy. This is sweetness is easy selling, and bitter, bitterness needs back needs. How do you say a, a public that is more aware of other taste and is willing to experience other taste and learning to, because your taste is an evolution. Also, when I started brewing, I, my, of course, Gru- Goldenberg that I made first was my favorite taste, and little by little, 
I went away from it. No, it's still a good beer, but I don't drink it anymore. I drink bitter beers. My favorite is actually bitter or even lower in alcohol like Simplex. So it's an evolution, your taste, of course. Let's talk a little bit about the hops themselves because as we were rubbing hops earlier, I, you know, I was really struck by the sensory and, and you know aromatic effect of that. Before we do that, from the rotatable pickup tube on Rogue Brewing's Pilot Brew House to the integrated hop backs on Sierra Nevada's twin prototyping brew houses, SS Brewtech has taken technology they invented working with world-renowned industry veterans and made them available to every craft brewer. To learn more about SS Brewtech's innovation list, head on over to ssbrewtech.com. Also, if you're looking for a direct partnership with an independent hop grower, who is as fanatical about flavor and quality as you are, join the revolution. Hop Revolution's only reason for being is sustainably farming and processing New Zealand's most flavorsome hops. They get that great beer is not brewed to a past or a future ideal. It's an ongoing journey of fresh thinking. Hop Revolution really is only here for your beer. Let them flavor your thinking stateside directly from Hop Revolution or through Crosby Hops or Mill 95. Learn more at hoprevolution.co.nz. As we were touring with Sander earlier uh, today around the brew house, you know, we, we went into the hop cooler and rubbed some of the hops. I think it was a brewer's gold uh, you know, hop that, came, that we were rubbing. And having rubbed plenty of American hops from the Pacific Northwest and having, like, when I do that, um, everything around me, everything on my body starts to smell like that hop and my hands are stained and, you know, there's an intensity to the aroma that comes from those hops that is, it's just very overwhelming. Mm -hmm. And as we were rubbing these Brewer's Gold hops that are, that are grown locally here in Belgium, I was struck by how subtle it was, how they had a beautiful character to them, but they had so much less intensity, you know, to where even after rubbing them, I could smell my hands, rub, you know, clean my hands off and they, they, it, they weren't stained and they didn't have this pervasive uh, aroma to them. It was a very different physical experience. And I, I, I think, I mean, that has to, again, impact, the, you know, how that works within the beer itself. Yeah, of course, if you compare American, real American house, breed it in America, it's very different. You can see in, for example, our beer that we have, Amer Amer, is, is a, the name is, uh, is French for bitterness, Amer, but it's also Amer, American. Huh? So American bitterness. Um, and <laughs> and in fact, um, it's made with, with two hops, Centennial and Cascade, who are uh, two of the two the three C's, I think. Um, and, and, but it's breeded here in Belgium. So it's the American variety breeded in Belgium and it gives you complete different. So it's really terroir of beer. The terroir sure. that, you, that you have in Washington or Oregon gets in the flowers. And what we get here from the soil here is completely different, even with the same varieties. So you can make totally different things with the same variety. Uh, even if the, the same of this, the rest of the recipe is exactly the same. You can do different things with just where hops are breeded. How would you describe a difference, say, between an American Cascade and a Belgian Cascade? Oh, the 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 Belgian Cascades don't have that pungent thing that you just explained. You, the fact that it's so overwhelming, it's so expressive that you can almost feel it from a distance. And um, 
And you, you don't have that in that. It's very more close to European hops. It has some difference, but it's more subtle also. It, it's, it's completely different. So that shows what, where your hop is grown. It, it influences a lot. And also, of course, the, the most, most of the hops we have here have low alphas. So it's not so expressive because of the alphas are much lower, more, uh, less oil means less pungent uh, taste or, 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 or nose. Or it's, it's, it's quite different in, in that way also. So all the hops we use are low alphas because we, we select on taste and we prefer to use a lot of it to give the, the bitterness and not using uh, a hop who is very powerful, but it's often overpowering also the beer. So we try to find the balance between... I like American IPAs. Don't let you be misunderstood. <laughs> sure, sure. <laughs> um, I like it very much. Many times it's a little bit overdue, I find. But it's, if it's well done, I, I have some good friends in Amer American brewers that make wonderful IPAs, and I like it very much. And it's, if it's well done, it's, it's wonderful. But it's a different kind of beer. It's not the beer we make. Yeah, I have, for example, uh, a brewer that brews here that uses American hops, and he makes a super fresca, who is a wonderful beer. And it's, it still has that very present nose that you find in American uh, IPAs. And it's very n nicely made also, but it's not the style we make. I would be, uh, you know, thinking about it from a brewing perspective, I would be worried... Uh, you know, at that lower level with that much more vegetal material that you might pick up some of those vegetal notes from using that quantity of hops. But I also found that it seemed, the hops seem to have less of that kind of character also. They seem to not have, you know, maybe some of the, the more intense green, you know, and plant matter kind of notes to them at the same time, you know, just because that lower intensity, they just don't seem to, you know, produce some of those less desirable mm -hmm. hops characters as, you know, just as much as the, the desirable ones are low, the under, less desirable ones are also low. And so they almost work in tandem with each other. Yeah. But in my opinion, that's different uh, origin. The, the origin is also the integrity of the, the, the leaf. If you have the whole cone, the leaf is not grinded. So it doesn't, it's it's more closed. It doesn't gives you the woody character of the of the the leaf because if you you mill it, it's all small particles. You can get out more of the the yeah other things than only the hop oils. In our case, the the, the flower stays as a whole, so it's more difficult to disintegrate it in the boil. So it's mostly get you get out the oil but the rest is more difficult. So it's, it's another way of working, and that influences very, I think you, it influences highly your, your taste of the beer. So if you use pellets, also that has an influence. The fact that all the, the particles, all the leaves are cut in little pieces sure. gives you more uh, extract from it. That makes a lot so, of sense. Yeah, and that's yeah. A, a different way of doing it. Sure, yeah. sure. Is there another beer that we should uh, discuss that uh, you have a very particular viewpoint on? Well, I think we definitely need to talk about the the barrel program. <clears throat> Doing some really interesting things here with, uh, well, of course, maybe talking about Cuvée de Ranc and Creek de Ranc would be a good place to start. And then 
all the things you've done since then. I'm in awe of the yeah. Miracle and the uh, Weinberg and these other yeah, things, yeah. and talk and because you're playing around with lambic beers and and uh, Alberin beers and things. And could you talk about some of that and how that's evolving? Yeah, of course. The origin of, of, of that, in fact, is you have to go go back to the beginning of, of what we did when we started brewing. We were still having uh, roll yeast. So roll yeast was a, from a sour beer, and it, you could go to the brewery. It was like twenty kilometers from here, and you could get some yeast and and brew with it. And it was fantastic yeast to work with. The only thing is, at the moment, it was taking in a it was going up in a bigger uh, um, brewery, and at that moment. At that moment, they they decide they decided not to sell any any uh, yeast anymore. So that changes the beer, of course. But um, yeah, but I'm but I'm okay. curious about the, using the Rodenbach yeast in the early days. Yeah. So yeah. W- was there uh, any lactobacillus or anything in there that was yeah. that? That's what happened. If if you have a in that time a Goldenberg or even an exact bitter, because of the a lot of hops, it 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 restricted the becoming sour. But nevertheless, after six months, your XX or Guldemar or Pernamel would have a, a slightly sour touch. And that changes the beer, of course. And then in 2000, we have to find another yeast. So we, we, we choose for a, for a um, commercial yeast at that moment, and it, it changed the beer completely. Um, but the, the origin of the creek, that's where I want to go, is in fact in a, a brew that we made with... Um, Yeast, but with less hops because it was a demand of a bar owner that want to have a beer with less hops with less bitterness <laughs> so we made the brew of that beer and after six weeks it beca- became six weeks it became sour at that moment the, the, the bar owner said I don't want this beer it's sour so at that moment we, we said what are we going to do now with the, this beer and um, the idea was what did they do in the old times when beer became sour they put it on fruit, for example. So we put it on cherries. And after the end of, of the fermentation on cherries, we find it okay, but not completely what we want. And at that moment, certain moment, we sat uh, down at Guido's. We were big fans, huge fans of Girardin. And we were mixing this beer with Girardin. And, it, and so the light came up and we said, yeah, that's the way to go. And that, at that moment, we started... Blending, just like if you go in history in Belgium, you can find a lot of brewers that just blended beer because all the beers were aged in wooden fermenters. They started only in the 1930s using stainless uh, steel, not stainless steel, but steel enamel fermenters before all the beer was kept in wood. It means you have to sell it fast because at that moment they didn't pasteurize. You have to fa- sell it fast and it has to be drunk fast. So if beer became sour, it was another product. So then you make a new kind of beer or you put it on cherries or later, if that doesn't work, you make vinegar. That's what most breweries did. Um, and that's how we started making Creek cherry beer. Later was uh, some demand from uh, Shelton Brothers that said, why don't you sell the beer as an origin, the original beer without the cherries? Uh, and then we made uh, five years later only, in 2005, I think, the cuvee. With the same, without the cherries, of course, so just aged beer, wood fermented beer, normally barley, no no addition of wheat, no um, no spontaneous fermentation, just normal fermentation. Put it on wood, let it sit for one year, and it ages and becomes sour also. Not that 
just like in a lambic way, but in a different way. You have first the f- alcoholic fermentation, and then you develop the, the acidic fermentation. If you make a lambic, it's just the opposite. You mix uh, with, with a part of uh, um, wheat, and then you have spontaneous fermentation, means f- development of sour, and then the alcoholic fermentation starts. We went from there, and we still were blending with, uh, with lambic then. And it's both the creek and the, the cuvée de Ranke are blended with lambic, in fact, 30% lambic. Just on 100 liters, we add 30 liters of lambic before bottling, and it develops in the bottle then. So, like, for the creek, it means making the beer now is selling it in two years. So it's a very f- slow way of making beer. And after that, yeah, we, we both are in love with lambics and uh, sour beers and we have so much tradition here in Belgium. Um, and then we started using lambics from other producers. Um, we started, um, I think, in 2009. For the first time, we made uh, Back to Black, who is, in fact, an old recipe that, find, that I found in, in an English book. And that was one, in one way at, um, speaking about Valentine's in America. And then also the porter, the old porter style in uh, Burton on Trent. So I married these two, and it made the back to black. It's a beer from 9% alcohol with um, 100% 100 IBU bitterness, mm-hmm. and then aged for nine months in, uh, in wood, and then bottled. And then we could see that it dev- that developed like some outbrain character. And from there, we went down to develop, for example, the Weinberg later. Another thing is uh, Vie Provision, for example, is the base beer that we use before we make Cuvée de Ranke. And then a lot later development was also making Lambic because we could see that most of the Lambic producers that were keeping their Lambic for them, not selling it anymore. <laughs> sure. where, well, they s- often come from tradition that they were selling 80% of their production to Hoese stakers. And at a certain moment, when Lambic became and Lambic and Goose became popular again, they were keeping it for themselves. So at a certain moment, said the only thing to have more Lambic is to make it yourself. And so we make also a kind of Lambic that we call Spiro Lambic because this is not the Zene here, but it's the Spiro small river here. <laughs> and we make a, like a blend that we don't call Ode Hoese, but it's very similar and it. Uh, we call it miracle because it can happen here that you make this kind of beer. But I don't want to be a competitor of that. I just want to show that we can do it. So it's very small batches. It's like four or five thousand bottles in a year. And that's it. We do it as an amusement, as a hobby. Yeah. And you're using the cool ship. And is, is the word also similar? You d- yeah, we, we, have a, we, we have a, a small cool ship. So what we do at the moment is chilling just a part of the, the word on a cool ship. The rest is normally chilled, and when the other, the, the 300 liters chilled on the cool ship get in action, we get them together, and from there it develops. It's a little bit different than cooling everything in a cool ship, but it's also the way that some, hop, that some lambic producers do it. Sure. Some more industrial lambic producers do it this way. But my my uh, ambition is to... to, to buy, to build a cool ship also here for one for an entire brewer. 
that's for the next two uh, years, let's say. Yeah, yeah. So with Cuvée d'Oranc, you blend 30% Lambic with 70% of your wood-aged beer that has soured in fooders, right? Yeah. Um, why blend? Why not release a single stream beer that just has gone through you know, just the fooder beer by itself? Because it's different. Because uh, you you don't have the same complexity in just a fooder beer. If, if, if you... You will you try the pro, Vieille Provision that we put on the market. That's that, in fact. Yeah, and it's a good beer, but it's more. It has a slightly sour, but also uh, uh, some woodiness. And it's a, it's a good beer. It's a nice beer, but it's not not my favorite. I I like the complexity that you the complexity that you find in more elaborated elaborated beers, just like in Lambic, and and so we want want to to have this complexity in it, and and we also find that. Blended beer are very interesting because it can give you a development that you don't find. And if you have one lambic brewery, you get out one lambic and you can taste it almost nine nine times out of ten. You you taste the lambic and you will tell from what brewery it comes. If you have a, a Hoses taker, he uses two, three different origins and he has one, two, three year old. So he has in place of three three different Lambics, he has nine or twelve or more, and he he can create much more complexity. As a staker, as a blender, you have another. It's another job. It's it's the thing is to marry tastes and and to to create complexity, and and then you can age it, and and it can yeah, if, make a very nice evolution. Evolution. So. I don't like to do things the way with adding bacteries, for example. You can go much faster, but the complexity is nine times out of ten, it's not there. And and rather and, so you don't pitch lactobacillus no, or something like you no. don't want to speed that up. No. So we always make a beer, put it on wood, and wait. And then you see. After six months, you ha- you can start to taste, and after another three, nine months, you can start to taste. And then you see what happens and, and blending it. I believe in this way of doing it, but that's my belief. Sure. Well, we're getting on in time. Let's zoom out a little bit and talk about, you know, the near-term future and then the long-term future for Duranka. Now, we're sitting in a tap room that you have built somewhat recently. I imagine investing in a, a tap room at the brewery right before the pandemic was not a great uh, business move, but uh, it's a beautiful sp- and I say that jokingly. Um, it, it's a beautiful space in which to engage with people. What are some of the you know the near term goals for the brewery? What do you hope to achieve soon? And what are what's the big picture long term goal for the brewery? Well, it's it's quite simple. I think we 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 go just for the best quality for every beer we make, and and that's the the only goal, and it has to be the only goal. And of course, we want to grow a little bit, and we have some ambitions, but the ambition cannot make that you that the quality goes down, and it's that's our only concern, and on on, on our only. Um, we are both sixty three, so we are going down, and we know that. I think <laughs> sure, yeah. sure, and and that's. Why we have a, a bunch of young guys who are here, and, and it's my daughter and also my son-in-law, Alexander, that you spoke with, but also like Jonas, another brewer that, that works here, who are all passionate about beer and, and like good beer and, and want to do everything to, 
to achieve the goal to, to try to make the best beer. I don't say we are the best brewery, but we try to make the best beer. And, and we want to do it in a natural way. We don't want to have ads. There's no ads and, and no beer. We just use the five different raw materials you need to make beer. And we include sugar in that because we, have, we do ferment in, in the bottle, of course. Um, and, and for the rest, it's just the whole is just to have a, enough growing to make the company alive and, and vibrant and, and still can invest in, in new things and, and development. I don't have the ambition to be the biggest one. I don't have the ambition to to be, yeah, I don't know. Um, my ambition is not money. We could tell that when we were touring the brewery earlier, you produce about, what, 8,000 hectoliters yeah, per 8, 000, year. Yeah, that's more or less what we do. But it looks like a brewery that produces much more beer than that because the way that you all have it set up, you know, to make it better, higher quality, easier for your brewers to make the beer and to make it exactly the way you want is very evident in the the design of the brewery. Um, if making money was the only goal, it, it wouldn't be as well appointed as it is for a brewery of that size. Yeah, of course. Then you do. If you, I always say, if you don't want to earn money, don't make beer with whole hops. <laughs> <laughs> On the other hand, I find it's, it's a very nice way to, to be a brewer also, because you can say, I don't care about all the other guys that are in the chicken run, and uh, I just do my thing. And that's that's a good way, I think. Uh, I've been in my life once in a business who are very on the edge, let's say, and, and very difficult to earn money and very difficult to be because there was so much competition. And I said, I don't want that in my life. It's, I, I want to be able to do what I want to do. And if I can earn my life with that, that's more than enough. I don't need a pile of money. Uh, if I die, you don't take it away. So... That's how I think about it. Well, I think that's probably a good note to wrap this up on. Thank you, Nino, for talking to us about brewing. For nearly 30 years, G&D Chillers has set the mark for quality equipment you can rely on. RAR's headquarters in Shakopee, Minnesota is powered by renewable electricity. Trust the experts at Old Orchard to handle freight for your ingredients. Get detailed insight into your fermentations with BrewMonitor risk-free. Put SS Brewtex advances to work in your brew house and try New Zealand's most flavorful sustainably farmed hops from hop revolution as always if you enjoy the podcast go to beerandbrewing.com click on the subscribe button and uh, read all the fantastic content that our writers develop for the magazine nino again thank you for joining us on the podcast if people want to learn more about Daranka, where do they learn where can they learn more on the internet or in person of course you can find already a lot of information on the website www.daranka.be and uh, for the rest is is a lot of to find on the internet also of, of the brewery and of course who is really want to talk they all call this can, can send them a mail but uh, and if you have time we, we will respond <laughs> i think i have to interject also because i know it's it's always easier said than done that to say you should come here uh but where we're sitting up here in the tap room right like on this perch looking at the rooftops of uh of Dotigny and drinking some really delicious beers and it's been a real pleasure and, and for me this is a place I've been wanting to visit uh, I've been to the brewery before but not since the tap room opened so to be here is really cool it's open on Fridays and Saturdays plan your trip around that if you're going to come over here I uh, highly recommend it it's a beautiful view with some beautiful beers you're absolutely right 
Well, thanks for going to, joining us on the podcast. Nino, cheers. It's my pleasure. Thank you to Thank be you. here. Yeah, and uh, Sante. <laughs> Sante. This podcast is brought to you by Craft Beer and Brewing Magazine for those that love to make and drink great beer. Learn more online or subscribe at beerandbrewing.com or find us on social media at Craft Beer Brew.